Since today is uh, Mother's Day, let me just refresh you for a moment about how this holiday began. It was started by a woman by the name of Anna Jarvis. Anna Jarvis really loved her mother. Uh, Anna Jarvis was born in 1864 in West Virginia, uh, and she grew up uh, just adoring her mother, who was, by all accounts, a gracious, compassionate, um, a hard-working woman worthy of admiration. Uh, she admired her, Anna Jarvis admired her mother so much that two years after her death, she died in 1905, uh, Anna Jarvis held a memorial service for her mother. At the memorial service, she handed out carnations to those uh, who were there in honor of her mother, which was her mother's favorite flower. And then from 1907 to 1914, she spent these seven years of her life campaigning to have Mother's Day declared a national holiday, and she succeeded. In 1914, Woodrow Wilson uh, signed uh, a proclamation making it so. But just a few years later, by the 1920s, uh, Anna Jarvis was appalled at the way that Mother's Day had become commercialized. You've probably heard the first part of this story. Maybe you haven't heard this last part of the story. Uh, Anna Jarvis actually spent the rest of her life trying to undo what she had done in creating Mother's Day. She trademarked uh, the uh, holiday. She, well, she incorporated herself as the Mother's Day International Association, and she trademarked the phrases Second Sunday in May and Mother's Day. Uh, you couldn't use those without her permission, according to the law. She spent the rest of her family fortune and her whole life uh, fighting against how commercialized Mother's Day had become. Uh, she actually died in poverty in Westchester, Pennsylvania, uh, because of her fight against uh, Mother's Day. One of her great frustrations was that too many people were sending pre-printed Mother's Day cards to their mothers. Listen to what she said about that. A printed card means nothing except that you are too lazy to write to the woman who has done more for you than anyone in the world. And candy. You take a box of candy to mother, then eat most of it yourself. A pretty sentiment. Now, that's all the quote that's been preserved, but I'm pretty sure that after these lines, she also said, don't roll your eyes at me. <laughs> uh, I... I bought my mother and my wife pre-printed cards. And for some of you, that was a pretty significant step that you, you took this year. But according to Jarvis, this is not the way that you should honor your mother. Hmm. I have actually before us a more important question that I want to consider together. I want to think with you about a human, how a human being is supposed to honor God. If the Bible is his word and it accurately describes him, he is the most important person in the universe. What's an appropriate form of appreciation, of honor, of gratitude, of homage to pay to him? A few weeks ago, I walked into my son's room after rest time and I found taped to the ceiling a piece of paper. My first question was, how did that get up there? My next question was, why is that piece of paper taped to the ceiling? And my son said, I made a card for God and I decided to give it to him. <laughs> yeah, he stood on his headboard. Don't be on too much okay, about that. Rule violation number 103. Hmm. That's where God lives, right? That's as close as you can get when you're five years old is the ceiling. 
that, is, that how, is that how God wants us to honor him? Uh, I want you to take your Bibles and turn me to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 9 specifically is where I'd like us uh, to go this morning. And uh, we're going to look at this passage of uh, Scripture uh, together. Leviticus, of course, is the third book of the Bible. It's found within the first 100 pages of the first page of your Bible. Uh, And this is the worship manual of the Old Testament. It was written for the Israelites to tell them how to worship uh, the central character of this book, who is God himself. Now, as the Bible opens, we first meet God as the Almighty Creator. He calls the world into existence by His power. And this creating work culminates in the forming of two creatures. Two creatures made in His image with whom He can share His glory, His goodness, His kindness, His beauty. In fact, God and these creatures walk in the garden every evening. And then not too far into the story, as we read in Genesis, we discover that these first two human beings turn from all of the beauty and all the goodness and kindness, and they choose their own path, they choose their own way. It's not, though, the good path that they were hoping for. They wanted God's glory for themselves, but having turned from God, they find life to be filled with darkness and disease and death and despair. They, they set the world on the course that it is today, isn't it? There's not a person here who has been exempt from one of these things. Everybody here has been touched in some way by darkness and disease and despair and death. Now, in Genesis 12, as the story continues, God begins His work anew. He creates a new people, a new people with whom He can walk and a new people that will gladly receive His wisdom and who will delight in His blessings and who will prosper under His care And in time, this one person that he chooses, Abraham, multiplies and becomes a large family and then a nation. And it's to this nation, of course, that the book of Leviticus is addressed. He's rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, and now he tells them how to worship him. And and his central concern, his central concern of this book is, in order to know God, in order to worship God and follow God, these people must contend with His holiness. He's absolutely perfect in power and love and goodness and beauty. How do unholy human beings, those who have nearly a perfect record of turning from His goodness and power and love, worship a holy God? What what can we give Him? What can we say? How can we respond? Just in in one simple way to think about this, this is now spring will be into summer and my children will play outside and they'll play outside in the sandbox with the hose and they'll be messy, messy, messy. How, How do messy little children, dirty little children, come into our house that we have just cleaned? Not before going through the hose themselves, right? How, how do unholy people, how can unholy people worship, know, follow the holy God as messy as we are? Uh, in the course of our study of, of this book here, we've moved from the sacrifices themselves, the system that God established in the first seven chapters, and we've started talking about the priests who administer these sacrifices, who receive them, process them, and um, uh, represent the people to God and God to the, the people. 
the priests are the, to the Old Testament law a little bit like uh, police officers are to our law. Uh, in, in Millersville, you must drive no more than 25 miles per hour. Uh, do you ever struggle to drive 25 miles per hour? Uh, 25 miles per hour is the school zone speed limit in Dallas, Texas. And when we first moved uh, here, uh, I don't think I actually needed to touch the gas in order to go 25 miles per hour. My car goes 25 miles an hour when it's just in drive. Uh, I use my brake in town. I don't use my gas pedal. Uh, but that 25 mile per hour limit is the law, and it's the responsibilities of police officers to enforce it. They uphold, they enforce, they represent the law. It's similar, not identical, but it's similar to what the priests are, are doing here. The Israelites uh, did not know it at the time. Eventually this law is going to change, and thus the priesthood is going to change. We read about that in Hebrews. But for now, we're reading about this law and these priests. Now, in chapter 8, they were ordained to ministry, and in chapter 9, they actually begin their ministry. And this chapter sets before us a pattern for worship, a fourfold pattern for worship. And I want you to see that today, because we gather every week in order to, what? Worship. This is a worship service. Many of our ministries change over the years and over the year, the course of the calendar, and we're about to uh, go through a transition again Uh, But this does not change. We meet for worship on Sunday mornings. And here, I think, in Leviticus 9 is is a broad outline of what we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to expect. Therefore, it's it's one of the most important chapters in this entire entire book. If you're here this morning and and you're not yet a follower of, of Christ, not only am I happy that you're here, but perhaps today... Uh, I can help you understand why we do some of the things that we do when we meet together. I want to show you this fourfold pattern of worship, and and I'm going to give you four words. Maybe you can think of them as four hooks on which you're going to hang your thoughts of this this pattern of of worship. Here's the first word. The first word is the word anticipation. Anticipation. Uh, Let's read from the text here. I want to uh, read from verses 1 through 6. So follow along as I read from uh, Leviticus 9. On the eighth day, the text says, Moses summoned Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. He said to Aaron, Take a bull calf for your sin offering and a ram for your burnt offering, both without defect, and present them before the Lord. Then say to the Israelites, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old and without defect, for a burnt offering and an ox and a ram for a fellowship offering to sacrifice before the Lord together with a grain offering mixed with oil. For today, the Lord will appear to you. They took the things Moses commanded to the front of the tent of meeting, and the entire assembly came near and stood before the Lord. Then Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded you to do, so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Now, we're going to talk about the sacrifices more in just a minute, but the key to understanding this chapter, I think, is why, understanding why the sacrifices had to be made. What were they for? And the text tells us with, with connecting words. He uses a, a connecting word in verse 4. Did you notice that? Uh, bring the ox and the ram. And then the last sentence, for today the Lord will appear to you. If I were marking my Bible, I might circle that word for. 
Then in verse 6, Then Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded you to do, so that, another word worth circling, so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Uh, this, is, this is the end. This is the goal. This is the purpose for this ritual. The reason for these sacrifices. When we gather together, when the people were gathering together, they were expecting an encounter with the living God. That, that's what worship is about. What it's for. What it is. Worship is to encounter the living God. Now that's a loaded phrase encountering the living God. And, and I want to unpack that phrase in just a moment. But I, I want you to notice how this challenges us about what happens in this building. This worship involved ritual, but it was not an, in, an end in itself. Uh, we do repeated things that are always part of our worship. Singing, reading, praying, speaking. But they're not an end in themselves, the rituals that we have. Worship is not about self-expression or self-fulfillment or self-actualization. We don't come together just to sing the songs that move us or to create and enjoy an emotional experience. Um, It's important to think about this because it's very easy to confuse an emotional uh, experience of warmth and affection with worship. They're not the same thing. I struggle, frankly, sometimes when I'm planning the service to avoid planning the service in such a way as to create an emotional experience. Uh, we should be engaged. I'm not, we, don't, we don't intentionally try to, to make the service unengageable. That's not the point either. But we are not trying to create an experience with staging or lighting or volume or tempo or drama. <laughs> If you look around this building, you can tell that's not our goal, right? When this building was built and designed, the, the thought of the architecture doing something for you was not in the mind of those who, who built this building. There, it's, it's plain, right? I've had Amish people come in the church and say, don't you people believe in decorating? Um, if we cry, if we laugh, if we clap, if we raise our hands... It's to be a work of the Spirit, not the atmosphere. Worship is not about creating an experience for ourselves. Worship is not about fulfilling an obligation. It's not about being entertained or aesthetic appreciation. A meeting together is, is a command, and I hope that it engages you, that you find it interesting and, and attractive, but that's not the point. We are called together as real people living in the real world, seeking to meet with the real God. Now, what does that mean? Here in this text, the people are going to see God's glory. It's being amazing, right? The Lord is going to appear to you. It's a rare occasion in the Bible. It's, it's the promise and the hope for everyone. If you're interested in a, a good study of the Bible, read through the Bible and find out what it says about seeing God. You'll find some fascinating things. Uh, you'll see in, in Exodus uh, chapter 33, this is Moses' great request, God, show me your glory. In John chapter 1, this is the great fulfillment. Uh, Jesus has come and He has explained the Father to us. We have seen Him. He is full of grace and truth. He is the Word in flesh. 
Or you might read about in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This here is the, the um, grace-driven fight for purity. Oh, to see God. And then it culminates in Revelation chapter 21 where, uh, and 22, where the people of God are together and they see His face. The, the ultimate culmination, seeing God. It's, 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 it's stunning. Think about that when, when, you, when you read the text, when you read the Bible. Fine. What does it say about seeing God? Now, as I understand though, as I read the rest of the Scripture here, I think we could summarize what this means for us now, apart from the tabernacle and apart from the sacrifices, um, to encounter the living God. And I want to summarize this in, a, in two phrases that, that uh, seem to be evident in our worship and encountering the living God. First of all, this means speaking to and hearing from God. Speaking to and hearing from God. We speak to God when we gather together, don't we? We pray, we confess our sins, we sing, we give. That, that's the statement. Um, we speak to God. And we hear from God when we gather together. How? We read Scripture. When someone comes to the platform to read the Bible, it's time to sit up and listen because God is speaking as His Word is read. God speaks as you listen to preaching. This is a miracle. I play a role in this. It's, it's, this is stunning. We believe through the intervention of the Holy Spirit, God takes my fallible words and which I try to unfold what this text says, and he uses these words to speak to his people. That's astounding to me. He takes what sometimes is a train wreck up here, and, and he impresses upon people what they need to hear, and he graciously lets the chaff blow away. That's <laughs> kindness. We speak to God, God speaks to us. Second, though, this encounter with the living God is a community event. We do this together, don't we? And so also this means, I think, distributing grace to one another. Encountering the living God, speaking to and hearing from God, and, and distributing the grace of God to one another. I, I learned this from 1 Peter 4. It's, it's uh, in, in your, uh, on your sheet there. Look at what it says, 1 Peter 4, 8-11. through 11. Above all, he says, love each other deeply. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Oh, they're coming for dinner again. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Faithfully administering... There's, a, there's that word, administering, distributing. Faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as, as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Through serving, through speaking, we are means of grace to one another. We distribute God's grace. I think, oh, when I read this verse, I think about those babies that are being held right now in the nursery. Um, rocked, sung to... Uh, uh, padded, comforted. They're beneficiaries of God's grace, aren't they? Someone is, is communicating to them that God is, is gracious and kind and cares for us from cradle to grave right now in the nursery. Uh, do, do you give God's grace in, in the foyer? Ha! The foyer's been cleaned. That, it, that service, somebody has served us in, in that way, right? 
When you shake a hand this morning, when you hug a friend or you smile, you offer warm words, you welcome somebody, you're distributing God's grace. Now, every now and then I begin our service by asking you to, to pray, don't I? A very simple prayer, I say. At the beginning of the service, bow your head, say this, God, if you have something to say to me, I'm willing to listen. If you have something to say to me today, I'm willing to listen. Every now and then we start our service that way. And, and, and the... the uh, the basis for this, or the, the wisdom for this, is right here in Leviticus 9, anticipation. We anticipate a very, an encounter with a living God. Next, time, uh, next Sunday, when you're scrambling to get everybody in the car for church, and, and, and people are moving very slowly, and it bothers you a little bit, um, why are we in such a hurry? Where are we going? What's going on? Say to them, don't say, it's time for church, get in the car. Instead, say for them, Say to them, we're going to go and speak and listen to God. And we're going to give and receive grace. It's great. Now get in the car. (laughs) Anticipation. Anticipation. Here's number two. Number two, atonement. Atonement. Atonement is the subject of verses 7 through 21. And most of this chapter, verses 7 through 21 deals with Moses and Aaron's actually very careful handling of the sacrifices. Uh, verse 7. Look, we'll just read verse 7 here. Moses said to Aaron, Come to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and the people. Sacrifice the offering that is for the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. And then just as he's supposed to, as we've talked about over previous weeks, Aaron offers his own sin offerings, his own burnt offerings. Then he offers the sin and the burnt and the grain and the fellowship offerings for the people. This is a reminder to us of the principle that's all the way through the Bible. A relationship with God begins with a reckoning with your sin. Facing the fact that you fall short of God's perfect standards, your sin must be dealt with. You cannot ignore the reality that you are unholy and God is holy. Here's why. There's two reasons why you have to reckon with this. First, sin separates you from God. Sin separates you from God. This is so clear in the Bible. I think in particular in Isaiah 59. Look at what it says. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken lies, and your tongues mutter wicked things. Uh, Clean hands... Dirty lips, what Isaiah says. This is our condition. Like a cloud that obscures the sun or or the stars at night, so our sin separates us from God. This is, this is not hard to figure out or hard to think about. It, it's lawn mowing season, isn't it? Um, let's imagine here that your lawnmower, you're pushing the lawn, lawnmower along and it breaks. It's not going to work. So you need to finish... So you decide you're going to go over to your neighbor's house and borrow his lawnmower. So while you're walking across the lawn, his dog, that little yippy-yappy dog, comes out to greet you. That dog. Dog that spends too much time on your lawn, if you know what I'm saying. And it comes, he come, this dog comes after you. Dog. So dog gets a little close. And you just, just with a little flick of your foot, I mean, just, just a little one, pop him right in the jaw. 
he runs away. And as you look up from your successful swipe at the dog, there you see standing on the porch your neighbor looking at you. Right? You have some business to deal with before you ask, hey, can I borrow the lawnmower? You have some things to do. Right? Sin separates us from God. Here's why. This is actually another reason you can't ignore the reality of sin. Sin arouses God's wrath. Sin arouses God's wrath. You'll remember another name. Uh, Aaron offers the sin offering first. Um, you'll remember that another name for the sin offering I suggested to you is a purification offering. Sin pollutes, and for your own protection from God's holiness, the people need to purify the tabernacle, they need to purify the altar by sprinkling it with his blood. Aaron has just been through a seven-day period of purification. He is more pure spiritually, ritually than anybody else in the whole nation of Israel, and he still has to offer this sin offering, this purification offering. God demands blood. Why? This is the center of our faith. When we talk about what the center of our faith is, we talk about the bloody death of Jesus Christ. Why does God demand this? This is a question that if you read any of the books that the new atheists have written in the last uh, ten years, this is what they'll, they'll ask. Why is God, why is the God of the Bible so violent, so aggressive, so, so gross? This is not the way I forgive people. If you came to my house and you stole my wheelbarrow and you brought it back to me a few days later, and you said, Divinity, I'm really sorry I stole your wheelbarrow. Would you please forgive me? I do not look at you and say, yes, I will forgive you as long as you bring a goat and slit its throat right here in my driveway. I don't do that. I say to you, sure, I I will forgive you. Why does God, why does God say, bring the sheep, bring the ram, bring the ox? Remember that the book of Leviticus is dedicated to embedding deeply within us the knowledge that God is holy. And he demands blood as an expression of his nature, his holiness. I actually don't think that this would be too hard for you to understand, for us to think about. Uh, let, let me illustrate. Uh, I wonder if anybody here has perfect pitch. Let me hear perfect pitch. Now, not baseball. This, I know it's baseball season, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about musical pitch. There are perfect people who have perfect musical pitch. Uh, that is, they can look at a musical note, see on the page, and it's a C, and then they can sing a perfect C. This is a C. They read it and they sing it. I don't have perfect pitch. That was not a C. Uh, one of my, my father's uh, teachers had perfect pitch. And uh, he knew uh, when he would drive his car, he could listen to the hum of the engine, and he knew when he was driving the speed limit that, it hung, that the, the engine hummed at a perfect C sharp. So he never looked at his speedometer, he just listened to the sound that his engine was making, at perfect pitch. Um, a perfect pitch is, 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 is that's a wonderful thing. It can be a horrible thing, though, too. Because what if you're singing in church and you look at the hymn book and it says C and, and you want to sing a C, but the piano, it's in tune with itself, but it, it's not right dead on C. And you can tell, oh, the, the piano's in tune, but it's not really in tune to the absolute standard of C, which I know what it is, and the piano apparently doesn't. It's kind of painful. This, this urge in you to sing a real C like it says on the page, but you can't because things are out of tune. What if you're a skilled builder? 
Um, do you ever walk into a, to, to a building and your eyes are just drawn? It's part of your nature. Your eyes are just drawn to the, to the corners and you notice, you see, oh, this building is not plumb. <laughs> um, have you ever walked into a lobby and, and seen a picture hanging askew? Now, what do you do? Some of you have enough restraint not to touch it. Some of you, though, that just bothers you. And you make sure nobody's looking, and you fix it. And the world is at peace. I don't like hanging banners here, because inevitably, some Sunday after I first hang the banners up, somebody comes to me and says, it's crooked. Hmm. Or some of you, uh, some of you have... Uh, a keen eye for fashion, and you, and you walk into church and you see me standing up here and you think to yourself, oh, Divini. Not only does that not match, but it didn't match in 1987 when it was in style. Right? You just, you just have this impulse of these certain things. There are certain things about you that just by nature you fix. You have, you have an impulse just to fix what's broken or to tune what's flat or to straighten what's crooked. God is the ultimate restorer. He is the ultimate repairer. And when you come to Him, you have to recognize your life is crooked. Your heart is out of tune. Your values are not plumb. And your attitudes are way out of style. Creation is in rebellion against His glorious perfection and we experience His restorative work as judgment. See, God sees a universe that is filled with greedy people and dishonest people and racist people and lust-filled people and angry people and impatient people and abusive people and in His holiness, God will fix what is broken in you and in me. And if you were to come, if you are to come before him, you must be protected by blood. And on all of these offerings are express that, that brokenness that needs to be repaired in some way. The sin offering is about the pollution of sin. The burnt offering is an expression of our necessary devotion to him. The grain offering acknowledges our dependence upon him. The fellowship offering speaks to those, uh, the joy of those who come to know God. You cannot come on your own because God is the ultimate repairer and you will experience his repairing work as judgment. Now, Romans 3 uses these same concepts to talk about the death of the Lord Jesus. Sin arouses God's wrath, his natural holy impulse to fix what's wrong, to restore the universe to rightness. And Jesus Christ is the ultimate object of God's wrath. These bulls, these goats, they were okay for a time, but they were not ultimately sufficient. To come before God, you must reckon with your sin. This is why Jesus says in John 14, very clearly, I am the way to God. No one can come before God without me. You can't get to God without me. There is no shortage of people in this world who publicly speak about God. And you can find God language everywhere. They pray to God. They cry out to Him. Without Jesus, there is no way to know God, no way to come before God, to encounter God. Now, since we're talking about worship here, this uh, perhaps gives me an opportunity to, to remind you of something that I have heard Bob Coughlin say on a number of occasions. Sometimes um, you hear people speak about music as if it's the way that they feel close to God. You, you probably have had this experience at, at certain times. 
They want to sing songs that help them experience what it feels like to have intimacy with God. And it doesn't matter the style, whether you're a Fanny Crosby or a Chris Tomlin, it's got to be the right style. But music is not the mediator. Music does not take us to God. Jesus is the mediator. He is the one who makes it possible for us to know God. Now, the form and substance of it should allow you to express yourself, but only Jesus is the mediator. Only Jesus. Atonement. Atonement. Now, the last two words more quickly here. Intercession. Intercession is the next word to consider. Intercession. Verses 22 and 23a. Look what it says here. Then Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron then went out, went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people. Uh, the key word here is the word blessing. Aaron has gone into the tent for the first time here, and as the role of chief inter- intercessor is clearly passing from Moses to Aaron, and as a signifier of the fact that Aaron is now the one to bless them, he comes out and he blesses the people. It's a wonderful opportunity, the, the blessing that the priest offers to the people on God's behalf. Uh, maybe Aaron pronounced for the first time the blessings that's in, in number six. The, may the Lord make his face sh- shine upon you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. This wonderful opportunity He has in God's name to pronounce blessing. We say this all the time. You sneeze. Someone says, God bless you. This word blessing means may God enrich you. May He satisfy you. May He, may he fulfill um, your, your, your satisfaction in Him. May, may your life uh, may, may God take what you are doing as a, as a carpenter, as a painter, as a businessman, as a mother, as a father. May he enrich that work so that it is pleasing and satisfying. That's blessing. Uh, a, a few weeks ago, um, President Obama addressed Planned Parenthood first sitting president to give a major speech to the National Meeting of Planned Parenthood. He gave his speech and he used all the cover words for abortion that, that those who support abortion use, women's health and things like that. And he finished, when he was done, he said, thank you Planned Parenthood and God bless you. A horrible thing to say. Last year Planned Parenthood killed 300,000 unborn babies. So now the president wishes blessings upon them so that next year they'll be able to kill 400,000? The sign of God's enriching? Well, that's a tangent here. This is a very clear sign in this text, a very clear sign uh, for the people that, that there is someone who is going to speak to God for them, and Aaron is going to be that person. He's going to pronounce God's blessings. Now here, just as the New Testament says, Jesus is the, provo- the ultimate atonement, the New Testament says that Jesus is our intercessor, too. Again, we're continuing this theme. Who takes us into God's presence? Jesus does. Now, the final word here in this uh, pattern is the word celebration. Celebration. Look at verses 23 and 24. Moses and Aaron then went out in, into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people. Look, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. 
Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. There is a visible manifestation of the character of God. He's become visible in some sense. He has been before visible in the form of a cloud or a pillar of fire. Um, This is something more that's going on. Uh, Did they see a bright light? Was there a sound that accompanied it? Somehow they, they saw this. There was fire. You know, the sacrifices were already burning on the altar, and now the fire comes out of the tent of meeting and consumes them all completely. And the people respond for, for, in two ways. One, they shouted for joy, and then secondly, they fell face down. Now, your translation might not emphasize the joy of the shout. Um, it might just say shouted. Your translation might just say, when all the people saw it, they shouted. But, but it is a, a joyful word. It's actually an onomatopoetic Hebrew word. That's a fancy way of saying that this is a verb that sounds like the shout that they made. Um, you know the word yahoo? When, when you say yahoo, what's the appropriate way to say? Yahoo! Or yippee, maybe even is better. Yippee is a word that sounds like the sound you make when you're happy. Yippee! So the fire comes out and the people say, yippee, woohoo. They shout for joy. Why is that? Because this is a sign, the fact that they actually understand what is happening. They get the fact that the God who is holy, who will, who will speak to them wisely, who will prosper them bountifully, who will walk with them faithfully, has welcomed them in. He, this is the God who is worth knowing and serving. His blessing is worth having. And the people say, yes, God took our offerings. He is going to be with us. He is going to go into the promised land. He is going to fulfill His promises. Yippee! Now, sometimes... Sometimes we talk about God to people as if God is, is lonely, as if he really needs people. Oh, please, trust in God. He loves you. God wants to be your friend. He wants you to be his friend. Please. Sometimes we talk about God. The, the reality is that this is the God who is worth knowing. He is worthy of your worship, he, and he will let you in. That's good news. If, if you will turn to him in trusting faith, the God who made the world will invite you in. They shouted for joy. They fell face down before him. The, the joy that they experience is not joyless fear. God's glory is manifest in fire, consuming fire, not feathers. Fire came out of the tent. Balloons did not drop from the sky. God comes with bricks, not with bubbles. There is weight. There is substance. There is even a danger here. He comes with heat and brightness, not just a cup of warm milk. Don't forget that. What the people model for us here again is the truth that though you may come to worship hoping for and anticipating an encounter with God, realize that it will cost you something. You cannot hear God's voice and not respond. There is always a demand. You cannot leave unchanged. To do otherwise is to play with fire. God's presence is both a comforting joy and a challenging call. Uh, perhaps you're here this morning and, and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. 
and you need me to invite you to respond by believing, by trusting in Him. In response to what the Bible says about sin arousing God's wrath, you are called to turn to Jesus Christ, making a conscious decision of dependence on what He did on the cross. He died in your place and He rose again. And you can receive forgiveness and life by setting His death and resurrection as your hope, as as your joy, as your goal, as your model, as your aim. This is what the service is for. Every week, it's for your joy. Not in affirming you and allowing you to be who you are, but in God's gracious acceptance. And and it is for calling, calling you out of yourself into the greatness of God's glory. Let's pray, shall we? Oh, Father, we come before you this morning and we recognize, even as you set this pattern out for us in Leviticus, we recognize that we fall far short. Father, we are more inclined to walk into this room hoping not to be bored than anticipated, anticipating speaking and hearing from you. Uh, we are more inclined to, to reflect upon the working of the technology or the um, singing of the, the sound, the sound of the, the singing that we do. We are more intent to reflect upon that than we are upon the fact that Jesus Christ is the one who, is, who takes us into your presence. We are more inclined, Father, on Sundays just to be grateful that it's over than to think about how we respond to what you say. Father, we confess we fall far, far short. And yet again, we have reasons this morning to be thankful for Jesus Christ who is our sacrifice. You forgive us from, for our shoddy, thoughtless, wordless and spiritless worship. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Thank you that you... Uh, oh, this, this nation would, was a, a mess. And we become evidently so. Aaron, the, the chief idolater, is, is the priest. And these people would not walk with you uh, as you commanded. And, and you knew that. And still the fire came from the tent of the meeting. Thank you, Father, that you still meet with us though we fail often. Your mercies are new every morning and we pray, God, that you would make us a congregation of people that have a very attentive ears to hear from you and very careful mouths that speak to you. Change us so that next Sunday when we gather, we'd be ready. Thank you for your mercies and we pray all these things together in Jesus' name saying, Amen.